Leviticus chapter 26, if you'll join me there. We're almost done the book of Leviticus together, so we'll see whether tonight or next time together, one or the other, we'll wrap up our study in the book of Leviticus together. And as we come to chapter 26 now, we find what is really very common, really if you study uh, even uh, ancient documents and agreements where many times at the end of uh, a treatise or agreement there would then be a section at the end of that uh, where there would be sort of uh, corresponding blessings and curses in regards to the faithfulness to fulfill what had been laid out within it. And so we find here in the end of the book of Leviticus, this section, chapter 26, where God now speaks to the children of Israel uh, regarding their now response to the commands and the instructions that he has given to them. We find the word if, you'll notice, repetitively in this chapter, I believe over some 30 plus times, we find the word if. And what's being referenced here, the idea is God says, if you will do this, uh, is an indication that we have choice and that we are able to make decisions and God gives us his truth. God gives us his commands and his instructions, but we then have the opportunity to decide what we do uh, with the truth of God's word. I, I fully understand that. I Many times in a, a counseling situation, I can sit with someone and listen, and as they're asking for input or direction, then can turn to the scriptures and say, well, look, in regards to what you share, this is what the word of God says in relation to that. Or as we just talk through things, look, this is what seems to be uh, God's will or the way to respond in that situation. Uh, but I always, many times, uh, close those times and have even said to people before, but here's the reality. You can nod your head to those things. You can agree with those things. Uh, you can assent to them mentally and say, yeah, I agree with that. That's what's true. That's what's right. But I often say, but the reality is this, you're a big boy or you're a big girl. And when you leave this office or this meeting now, the truth of the matter is you're going to go out and you're going to do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, you're going to decide how you respond to these things and, and what your choice and your decision is because God's created us with a free will. We're, we're not puppets. God doesn't uh, you know, override and not, and not allow us to make decisions. He's created us in his image, in his likeness. And part of that is that we have volition. We have free will. We have the opportunity to choose. Uh, and, and so God here says, if you respond this way, then you'll experience my blessings. If you respond this way, God is going to say, then you will bring upon you yourself uh, a, a cursed life and problems and difficulties and punishments and consequences and, and in a sense they're self-inflicted really understand a, a blessed life uh, or a cursed life really is something that we in many ways bring upon ourselves uh, God desires to bless us. There's no question he's a good God. He wants to bless. He wants to uh, do what's favorable in our lives. He's a good, benevolent God. He's a loving father. And like any father, uh, it's natural to want to bless your children, to make them, uh, in a sense, have an enjoyable, pleasant experience in life. Uh, and God desires the same for us. So he says, look, if you walk in this way, you'll bring my blessing upon your life. I'll reward that. And he says on the other side of that, however, because I am a good father, uh, if you disobey, if you violate my commands and my authority in your life, then you will bring upon yourself my chastisement and my punishment. And this idea here of God rewards obedience 
uh, and God disciplines and punishes uh, with consequences and disciplinary action our disobedience. And understand, even in those things, that's not intended necessarily to ultimately be punitive as much as it's intended to be constructive. Even God's disciplines and chastisements and difficulties that he brings from our wrong choices and times when we rebel or maybe disobey, those are intended to bring people back into reality and to wake them up. And those unpleasant experiences are intended to awaken a person to the error of their ways and to get them really back under the blessing of God. Because that's where God intends for us ultimately to be. So you'll see that as we go through this chapter here, beginning in verse 1, he says, You shall not make idols for yourselves. So of course, just a, a reiteration of all the way back from what God gave them in Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments about not worshiping or creating idols. And again, as we've said before, an idol is basically... Uh, anything or anyone that we give worship or allegiance to other than God himself. So uh, interesting, the Hebrew term there for the word idols literally is nothings. Uh, so, so God says, why would you worship something that is n a nothing in comparison to the, the greatest something that you could have, which is me in your life? So he says here, you shall not make idols for yourselves. And again, we can all set up idols in our lives, whether it's a possession materially or maybe it's, it's, it's power or some position or, or whatever it may be. It's not always just some little statue as we envision in our mind when we think about somebody committing idolatry. You know, we can be guilty of self-idolatry where we worship self and we are the center of our devotion and our allegiance. And the, you know, we say to our children sometimes, Look, the world does not revolve around you. And yet, is it not true? I know many adults who still haven't grasped that concept. The world still, in their mind, revolves around them. And there's a self-idolatry, a worship of their own desires and preferences, rather than saying, no, that's, that's not correct. There's a time to say no to myself to do what is right or righteous, or to consider that there are other people involved in this situation, and my decision may have an effect upon them. Or, But here, God just giving that instruction not to make idols, nor carved images, nor a sacred pillar shall you... You rear up, verse 1, he says, for yourselves. Again, all of these things were very common in the land of Egypt where God drew them out of, as well as in the land of Canaan where he was about to take them into. It was full of idolatry and statues and pillars and Molech and Ashtoreth, these different images of different gods that they would bow down to. And God was forewarning them not to enter into these things to, in a sense, be conformed to the pattern of the world around them, which was very common. Nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to notice, bow down to it. And again, anything we bow down and give allegiance to. Uh, that is really what God considers idolatry. And he says, the reason is for I am, and that's the contrary. I am the Lord, your God. Those things are not what should be God in your life. I am, he says, the Lord, your God. Verse two, he reminds them to adhere to the instruction he gave to them just in our previous chapters. He says, you shall keep my Sabbaths, and notice it's in plural there. The idea seems to be not just the weekly Sabbath. Remember, they were to work six days, but one in seven on the seventh day they were to rest. 
But then God also gave to them, remember, the sabbatic year where they were to work and plow and tend and cultivate the land for six years. Then the seventh year, they were to then allow it to rest. Uh, And it seems that that term Sabbaths in the plural, there is a reference to the weekly Sabbath as well as the the sabbatic year, as well as even probably a... a, a, um, uh, indication there of even some of the other holidays that they would observe that we studied in our recent chapter back in 23. He says, and also you shall reverence my sanctuary, which at that time it was the tabernacle, uh, the tent-like dwelling where they would uh, have the uh, priestly ministry taking place where the presence of God would be among them. Ultimately, it would be the temple. But again, here God asking for reverence For notice, his sanctuary, again, the idea is to have respect for the gathering place of God's presence. And and I think this is beautiful that, that here God gives to them that injunction that there was to indeed be that that real reverence there that existed among them, uh, that they were to have a respect for the place where God's people gathered and where God manifested his presence among his people. That, you know, so important. I think it's wonderful that we can assemble in a casual environment. You know, I appreciate uh, the, the Calvary Chapel movement and the casual atmosphere that we can have where the focus isn't necessarily on dress or some of the you know other things that can be incorporated into a, what we might consider something of a more you know stringent environment so i appreciate the the casual atmosphere but we should never be casual or cavalier in our attitude when we come into the place of god's you know, gathering where his people come together. Again, Ephesians 2 ultimately tells us that the sanctuary of God is the people of God. Uh, It's not necessarily the structure itself. In the tabernacle, in the temple, that was where God manifested his presence. So they were to have respect or reverence for the presence of God and not be cavalier or casual about it. But as Ecclesiastes 5 says, they were to stand in all of God. There was to be a real a reverence and respect for the reality of the presence of God. And the Bible says that we now, as Christians in the New Testament sense, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 2 says that as we come together as individual believers, as living stones, the Bible calls us, that we become the dwelling place of God where God manifests his presence among us. Jesus said, when two or three gather in my name, I'll be there in the midst. The Bible says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And we want to always be careful that though we can have a casual atmosphere, that we never become cavalier and casual in a way that it becomes disrespectful or irreverent but that we always stay reverent regarding, hey, the, the God is in our midst. He's in our midst, the living God, the holy God. His, his presence is with us. And again, that the Lord would cultivate this in our hearts because I think it's an important thing that we want to be sensitive to as we you know, have times of worship on Wednesday evenings as we wait upon the Lord. You know, that's a special time where, again, we want to reverence, hey, this, the, the presence of God is in our midst. And what does God want to do? Does he want to speak to me? Does he want to move in a certain way? I want to be cautious and careful that I'm not doing things that are disrupting or, or, or in a sense, pulling away from what God may want to do in a very sacred way. And it's something I think that God gave to his people Israel and that we really should have a heart to adhere to as well. Now, chapter 26, verse 3, down now through verse 13, he speaks about the blessings that would come upon them, the children of Israel, 
as they would be obedient to his word. And you'll notice there again this, this indication of if, we'll see. God says, if you will do this and then I will, God says, responsively do that. God delights to reward obedience in our lives. Now certainly many of the things you'll see here in verse 3 to 13 are directly in context relative to the nation of Israel because God promised them a land. Uh, again, understand, God has not promised to us a land. God has promised the nation of Israel a land. And we have to be careful when we look at things like this because in context, this was given as God's covenant promise to the nation of Israel. God's promised them a land, a territory. He's never revoked that promise and he never will. You and I, the Bible says, we're citizens of heaven. We're waiting for the new Jerusalem. So certainly in principle, we can absorb some of these things by way of application, but we need to understand in their strictest sense, they were given to Israel. And because of that, you'll see references specifically to a geographic land and how God's blessing would be upon those things. But certainly we can, again, understand that in principle, spiritually, these things certainly have application for us as believers also. So he says to them, if you walk in my statutes... And keep my commandments. So again, adherence to God's commands, obedience to his statutes, walking them out, not just possessing them, but walking them out. That implies progress and obedience and perform them. Then here's what God says responsibly. I will give you rain in its season. Now, in an agrarian society where they predominantly farmed and took care of the land, that was critical to have the former and the latter rains. This was an indication of God's blessing, of God's provision. God says, if you're obedient, then I'll give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. So God promises blessing in the provision that he would supply to them, that he would saturate that which would become fruitful in their land, that he would cause them to have increase and to become fruitful and yield their fruit in season. Your threshing, verse 5, shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last to the time of sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. So God not only promises his provision but he promises the blessing also of notice prosperity and even excess there he says to them you, your threshing will last to the time of vintage the vintage to the time of the sowing the idea is what god's indicating is before you even get to the next season god says you'll still have excess left over from the last time that you reap the land or gathered in your harvest that there would always be sufficient in fact god's saying here in essence there'll be excess There'll be overflow. There'll be abundance. Of course, Jesus tells us in the New Testament, I've come that you may have life and that more abundantly. Jesus wants us to experience that abundance as we honor him and obey him. That is the, the pathway to an abundant life. Uh, the pathway to an abundant life is not to live selfishly, greedily, and, and, and to try and you know, do what we can to maneuver in life. No, Jesus says, if you obey my word, You'll experience abundance, and that abundance may be in a different way than what we envision, but there is an abundant life that Jesus intends for us to experience, and that's found in our obedience to his word, and as he waters the seed of his word, we experience fruitfulness and enough and sufficiency, and many times the, the blessing and excess of the Lord in our lives. He says, you shall eat your bread and dwell in your land safely. So God promises security. 
national security in a sense. You'll dwell in your land safely. God says, if you're obedient to me as a nation, as a people, I'll provide protection to you. It won't matter. He's going to say who comes against you. Look, verse 6, he says, I will give peace in the land. So again, if, if people, the citizens of Israel, were being obedient to the standards of God's word, remember all the social regulations we were reading about in here? Some of them we were going, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, all this stuff, you know, all, all the, you know, do this and do that. But, but why does God give that instruction? Because God says, if you relate to each other, the way I've told you to relate to each other, instead of just reacting in relationships and, and responding however you feel you're entitled to in situations, God says, no, if you treat each other and relate to each other justly and righteously and, and, and you're equitable and you don't take advantage of one another and, and you honor boundaries in the way that you have relationships and, and that you don't just indulge yourself with no restraint, God says, then you'll find there'll be a very peaceful, enjoyable, pleasant atmosphere among the people of God, among the, the, the nation of Israel. So God says, not just, again, peace from their enemies, but I think peace in the land in the sense that there's not antagonism and, and just civil unrest and aggression and all the things that come along with a, a society that is just living with everyone who's just doing what's right in their own eyes. And being selfish and, and mistreating one. God says, no, I'll give peace. There'll be a peace that will come over the land. And you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. So again, God would remove from them that sense of anxiety and fear of what's going to happen. Always being nervous. He says, no, there'll be a sense of security. A sense of stability God would bring to the people. And I'll rid the land of evil beasts and the sword that would come from a, an enemy that would attack them will not go through your land. So again, protecting the people and, and keeping the nation safe. He says, verse 7 also, you will chase your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight and your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. So here God promises in response to their obedience to his word, God promises in verse 7 and 8 now victory and power. So, I mean, here, God, I'll make provision, I'll prosper you, I'll bless you, you'll be fruitful, there'll be security, there'll be protection and preservation. God says, and on top of that, you'll find that you'll be victorious. And, and there will be, there'll be an, an, an incredible power added to you where he says five of you will be able militarily to chase away a hundred. He says it will only take there, verse 8, he says it's only going to take a hundred of you to put 10,000 of your enemies to flight. The idea is even when the odds are overwhelming, my power and victorious hand will be with you that will equip you. It's often been said before, you and God are a majority. Paul's going to say in Romans 8 where we're getting ready to turn the corner to it, look, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the idea there implied is, it doesn't matter who's against us. If God is for us, if God's not for us, then it, it, we're in big trouble. But if God is for us and we are in right relationship with God, it's amazing how his presence, his power being with us gives to us victory. And here he speaks of overcoming their enemies, not being attacked or vulnerable, but also having success 
and victory and his power involved in their lives and by the sword chasing their enemies, putting their enemies to flight and driving them out of their lives. And of course, spiritually, again, when we're in obedience to God's word, and again, if we want to look at this, the sword, you know, the Bible speaks many times of the word of God as the sword of the spirit. And adherence to God's word, obedience to God's word. How do you drive enemies out of your life? By utilizing the sword, the, the word of God, by obedience to the word of God, the psalmist says, Psalm 119, I've hidden your word, sword of the Spirit, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to the word. And again, God wants to give us victory over enemies. Jesus wants to give us that victory that he alone provides and through his word is where it comes. Verse 9, he says, for I will look on you favorably. Again, and make you fruitful and multiply you. So look at those terms. God's pr pr promising to Israel. He says that his favor would be upon them. They would be fruitful. They would multiply and confirm my covenant, God says to the Israelites with you. You shall eat the old harvest and notice have to clear out the old because of the new. The idea is such an abundance of blessing. God says it won't be that you'll have just enough. He says there will be so much the new blessing will be coming in and you'll be saying, well, we, we got to make room. There's so much extra. We, we got to get rid of some of the old blessing. The idea is that God would bless so much that they would become a blessing. That, that they would ultimately have so much that it wouldn't just be them being blessed that they would say, hey, we have too much. We have to be a blessing to other nations now. We have to help others because we have so much excess. The idea is here, they'd have to clear out the old blessing because God was bringing more upon them. In verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So there God promises, verse 11 and 12, another blessing and it's the blessing of his presence. He says, my presence will be in your midst. I'll dwell among you. I will walk among you. And again, that's a tremendous blessing. And that blessing was directly attached to his, his seeing obedience to their word. Again, Amos is going to say, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? And here God is saying, look, if you walk in my statutes, if you walk in my statutes, then we will walk together because we'll be walking the same direction and my presence will be with you if we're walking one way and God's walking the other way, then guess what we're doing? In a sense, we're, we're sort of walking away from the presence of God in, in essence. And I promise you this, God's not going to change direction. Okay? If, if this is the way of God and this is the way of righteousness and, and to walk in his statutes is to walk in the same direction that God's walking and we say, oh, I don't want to walk that way. I want to walk this way because I like this way better or I feel like walking this way. We have the right to do that but in essence, what we're doing is we're separating ourselves from the presence of God. In essence, it's almost like we use, you know, term, look, you're, you're taking yourself out from under the blessing of God. What are you doing? Walk together in agreement. Walk in the way God's walking and his presence will be there in a special way. Keep yourself, the Bible says, in the love of God, Jude tells us. And here God says he would bless them with his presence, being in their midst, walking among them. And I am the Lord your God, verse 13, he reminds them, here's the reason why they should obey, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I've broken, God says, the band of the, your yoke and made you walk upright. So God says, listen, 
Why should you be obedient? Because God says, I set you free so that you could be obedient. You already were a slave to that old way of life in Egypt when someone else ruled over you with rigor and, and you had no freedom. And God says, I set you free. I delivered you so that you wouldn't be their slaves, so that you could be my servant. And there's no greater master to serve. And again, the key to life is what? It's simply finding the right master to serve. Everybody's mastered by something. The key to life is finding the right master. And God says, I've broken the bands of your yoke so that you can walk upright, so that you can walk in the liberty that really is experienced when someone experiences serving Jesus, who's the greatest master of all. Now, verse 14, notice the change. He says, but, but he says, again, if you walk in my ways, if you're obedient, God says, I'll reward you with blessing. He was telling the children of Israel, but he's going to tell them, if you choose disobedience, if you choose to ignore my word and not obey, then he says that will bring upon you a life of curse and a life of problem and pain. He says, verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. So again, notice verse 16. I also will do this to you. See, God's, God's a good father. And because God is a good father, God says, look, in the same way, if you're obedient, I will reward your obedience. I'll reward your obedience and, and doing what's right. But God says, in the same way, because I am a good father, I can't overlook your disobedience. Again, the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Like any good father, that, that a good father, if he truly loves his children, can't reward obedience, but then just discard and allow and permit disobedience. That's not love. That's not love at all. L love rewards what's right and obedient, but at the same time disciplines and calls to account what is wrong so that that path would not bring upon the child the pain and the problems and the cursing that comes upon such a path. So God says, look, I will be faithful to do both, reward obedience, but understand because I'm a good, loving God and a just God, I also will deal with and discipline when there is disobedience. He says, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease, he says, and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed, God says, in vain. Again, instead of this field being prosperous and fruitful, God says you'll sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. Now notice how much of this, keep in mind, is very prophetic because God, remember, is giving to Israel these instructions they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. They haven't even began their wilderness journeys yet. And when you read some of these things, you're familiar with other places in the Old Testament, you know that a lot of what God's saying here, he keeps his word. Because the children of Israel violate God's commands and these very things become, in some senses here, prophetic of exactly what they bring upon themselves. Look what it says there, verse 16, the end. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. When we get to the book of Judges, perfect case in point with Gideon, 
It's a time in Israel's history where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. They're disobeying the word of God. They're not living according to the scriptures nationally. And what happens is they would go out and they would sow their fields. And because they were fearful of the attack of the enemy and they were vulnerable and insecure and their infrastructure was a mess in many different ways, what would happen is their crops would come in and before they could partake of their own crops, the Midianites who they were hiding from in fear would swoop in, they would steal away all the children of Israel's crops and rob them and basically they would sow and work their fields in vain and their enemy would come in and steal their food away from them. And we read about that in the book of Judges chapter 6 and in sections like that where these very things, your enemies shall eat your own food. Again, just enemies devouring what's intended to be a blessing for us, God allows it to just be consumed and ruined and Somewhat sad that we can sabotage our own lives by disobedience at times. Verse 17, God says, and I will set my face against you. And that's never good. I don't ever want God to do that. And you shall be defeated by your enemies. Again, take notice of just even the terms here. These are national things that Israel would experience. But are these not perfectly true of really what even on a national level people experience on a personal level when we sin and disobey the Lord. Verse 16, he speaks of sorrow of heart. Have you ever noticed that when we're disobedient to God and his word, it brings sorrow of heart? Have you ever noticed when we're disobedient to God, how we are defeated by our enemies where we were once having victory and success maybe in a certain area and now all of a sudden we're finding we're living a life of defeat and we keep being defeated by enemies that maybe we once were conquering or that God gave us victory over. They come back and begin to defeat us again. Those who hate you, verse 17, shall reign over you and you shall flee, God says, when no one pursues you. So the idea there is just uh, you know, a, a sense of, of panic. The idea here is that there's, there's, a, there's a sense of, of concern where God says nobody's even chasing you, but yet you have all this anxiety and panic and you're running and nobody's even chasing you. It leads to a life of instability, a, a, a sense of, of constant fear and, and nervousness, a very unstable experience. And after all this, verse 18, he says, if you do not obey me, in other words, if, if that didn't get your attention, God says, after all this, if that's not enough to get your attention, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And the idea there is, is, is an increase in intensity. And every parent has known that experience before where if, you know, if, if a small consequence doesn't work, then you have to intensify the affliction to, to gain attention or to, to drive the point home. And again, God says seven times more, I'll increase the intensity if you're not repenting, the idea is. Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. See, that's the goal. God said of Israel, when you're disobedient, he says, the problem is, is pride. And that's always the problem in disobedience. It's always pride. It's always arrogance. It's always pride and arrogance, whether it's on a personal level or on a national level, that lead a people to be disobedient to God. Every time Israel was disobedient to God, the root source of it was pride. It was pride, it was human arrogance that led them to be defiant to God and cast aside his commands and not live according to his statutes and his standards. And what does God say? God says, look, I'm going to have to break the pride of your power. I'll have to break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens, God says, like iron and your earth 
like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. Again, the idea there of, of closing up the heavens, withholding the rains, making it difficult, he says, for them. Again, where there would not be fruit and increase, the heavens would become like hard iron. The earth, because it got no water, would be hard to cultivate. The earth would become like bronze. And, and God says, and, and your strength will be spent in vain. In other words, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you'll put so much effort into it, and God says, I'll still let it fail. And boy, I'll tell you, that is one of the ways that God knows very creatively at times how to break people's pride and get their attention. Again, nobody's going to strong arm or overrule God. Says, God, God says, look, you can put all the strength, effort, and energy you want into your path of disobedience, and God says, you put all your energy to it, and I'll still make it fail. I'll still make it fail because God understands that sometimes that's what it takes to humble a nation that, that thinks they're so arrogant and successful. God, no, I'll just, I'll, I'll just, I'll let all your economic efforts fail. I'll let your economy crash. I'll let everything dry up that was once prosperous. And whether God does it nationally or God does it personally, he knows exactly how to work because he's sovereign over all things to do what he needs to to get attention when we begin to disobey and disregard his commands. He says, For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. So he would, in a sense, dry up their economic fruitfulness. Then, verse 21, If you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. Do you get the idea? that people can actually be pretty stubborn when they're disobedient. You would think, well, you notice that the section on cursings is much longer than the blessing section. Because God, you look at the, if you look at the language, it's so evident that God understands humanity and the stubbornness, the hardness and the, the rebelliousness of human hearts. Again, verse 18, after all this, if you don't obey me, verse 21, then... If you walk contrary to me, after all this, and then if you still walk contrary to me, God says, and are not willing to obey me, then I'll have to bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall become desolate. Verse 23, and if by these things, there's another one of our terms again, notice it. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you and will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. So the idea there again, permitting disease, sickness. The idea is, is God takes that, that, that boundary of protection and preservation that God can put around a nation. God can remove that at any time. See, God can preserve and set a boundary. And at the same time, God can just pull back the hedge. Whether, again, it's military attack, whether it's health issues and pestilence and disease, God can shield from that, and at the same time, God can say, at any point in time, I'll just pull back the hedge. Those things already exist, okay? We live in a fallen world. There's pestilence, there's disease, there's you know, anger and aggression, but God can preserve, and he said, I'll protect you, he's telling the children of Israel, I'll protect 
your nation. But if you disregard me, God says, then I'll just, I'll just pull back my hands of preservation and I'll allow these things to come in upon you. Verse, where were we, 25? When you're gathered together, I'll send pestilence among you. You shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. Again, notice, God can deliver us. God can deliver a people into the hand of their enemy. And many times, again, when we study the Old Testament, isn't that what we see God doing? Whether it's the Philistines, their perennial enemies, or whether it was other nations, we read throughout the book of Judges, many times God would deliver them into the hand of their enemies. It wasn't necessarily their enemy was stronger, but God would just allow them to be delivered into the hand of their enemies. When I have cut off your supply of bread, verse 26... Ten women shall bake your bread in one oven. The idea is that there's so little in supply that ten women had so little that they could all fit their little loaf of bread or dough batch into one oven because there was such a minimal amount left. And they shall bring back your bread by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. So again, interesting term there, not be satisfied. God can cause a sense of dissatisfaction divine dissatisfaction and i think god can do this again among a people among a nation where there's just a sense of emptiness a sense of just divine emptiness and dissatisfaction where god's trying to get people's attention and to wake them up and i think god again as i said before i think god does this personally too a life of sin a life of disobedience to god's word it will never be fulfilling Oh, yes, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, for a moment. There's the, the momentary rush, you know, the momentary gratification, whether it's, you know, indulging some substance or sexual, you know, sin or, 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 or you know, violent aggression to take out your anger. on. There's a sense of momentary satisfaction in that, but it's, it's not genuine, lasting fulfillment and satisfaction. Instantly, right afterwards, what's the very next thing? The emptiness, the guilt, the regret, all that that comes with it. And see, God can send that divinely. There's a divine sense of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment that causes a person like the prodigal. Remember, it says that the prodigal, when he's there eating the pig slop, when he's ran out of everything, he's spent all his efforts, right? He put a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of investment. He's going to go off and do his thing. The father just waited him out. And it says there he was eating the pig slop and it says that he came to his senses as he was doing everything he could. He tried tried to indulge himself to no end and he just had divine dissatisfaction. He came to a sense of what am I doing? What am I doing? I need to go back to my father's house. And, And God has a way of working when we're in disobedience to cause us to realize through emptiness where we need to be and where we have wandered off to. Verse 27, again, look, here's another term. I have this underlined. And after all this, amazing, the patience of God, but the persistence of how stubborn a nation, a person, people can be. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Again, we notice that repetitious term, seven times for your sins. Again, the word seven in the Bible is a number of completion, 
a number of, of the idea is a full week, seven days. It's a number of completion or fulfillment. So God says, I'll give a complete discipline or chastisement upon you for your sins. Verse 29, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And again, somewhat prophetic there because you read times throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament where ultimately it got that bad where they would be besieged and you read 2 Kings chapter 6 and other places where at times they would come in and Jerusalem would be besieged Lamentations refers to this and literally parents would resort to cannibalism eating their own children to survive out of starvation. See, in that day, if you wanted to attack or take over a city, typically what they would do is you would just surround the city. You'd make a wall, in a sense, around the city. And basically, it was just a waiting game. You'd, you'd find the water supply, you'd cut off the water supply, and you would just build a military wall around the city. And, and no one would be allowed out, no one would get in, and ultimately the food source would dry up, you cut off the water supply, and eventually you just wait the people inside the city out through starvation, through drought, through thirst, and things at times could get really, really bad and desperate inside the city. And as a result, this was the ultimate experience where people would become so desperate, would become so off-kilter in the midst of their sin and their stubborn rebellion, that literally, rather than surrender, they'd actually destroy their own children in self-indulgence to try and keep themselves going in their rebellion just a little bit longer. Now we look at that, oh my goodness, how, how could somebody, I mean, how could somebody sink, we think, to that level where they would be that staunch, rather than surrender, they actually would, would destroy the life of their own child and consume their own child on their own effort to not want to surrender? But I look at that and I tell you, sadly, I see people do that this day, still. I see some parents who are so stubborn in their sin, who, who at times can be so persistent in wanting what they want, that in a sense, they will devour and destroy the lives of their own children rather than surrendering to doing what's right and what's righteous and will hold out and become so off-kilter that they'll actually devour and destroy and consume their own kids as a last effort of, of continuing in their self-indulgence. And again, we may try and dress it up in a different way, but, but really it's much the same thing. Much the same thing and, and tragic. This is prophetic of things that would ultimately happen even with Israel. Verse 30 says, And I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aroma. So again, it didn't matter if they continued to offer incense. Their worship was meaningless if their life wasn't in obedience. God says, look, you, you can't continue to offer fragrance and incense and think somehow that you know, even if you worship me with your lips and your heart's far from me or you have you know, disobedience in your practices but yet you still offer a fragrant worship, God says, That's an, I abhor that. And many times Israel would become guilty of this. Malachi refers to some of these times historically. Verse 32, And I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies 
who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Again, prophetically, there are multiple times throughout history, we read of it in the scripture, we know it historically where God would do this is ultimately he would drive them out of the land. There would be a dispersion. And the, the children of Israel, though the land belonged to them, God gave it to them, it was his land. At times, God would, God would kick them out of the land. He would disperse them and he would cause them to be put off into other territories as their enemies would come in. Verse 34, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land, and the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwelt in it. Again, take note of those verses there. Verse 34, verse 35, God says, You'll be in your enemy's land and the land will rest during the Sabbath that you did not give it. He's referring here to remember that Sabbath year. Every seven years they would let the land rest. And again, this is prophetic. They haven't even left the base of Mount Sinai where we're at yet. But God's already prophetically, he knows his people. Now this to me in one sense is somewhat encouraging because it reminds me of this tonight. God knew they were going to fail. And ultimately this is exactly what happens. Remember they end up in Babylonian captivity, the southern kingdom, for 70 years because for 490 years they disregarded the sabbatic year observance and God says, okay, then you'll be out of the land for 70 years while the land enjoys its rest. But I look at this and I think to myself, wow, that is in some sense, and maybe I'm just a have a distorted mind. My wife would agree. I do. Someone have a distorted mind. And once I look at that and I think, but that also shows me that God knew the extent of their failure. God knew they were going to blow it. God knew they were going to make a miserable mess and they were going to suffer the pain and the consequences. And the thing, he didn't want them to experience it, but he wasn't shocked by it. They would be surprised by it. Others would be shocked by it. But God's not surprised by our failure and our sin and our disobedience. He knows we're sinners. He understands that. He, he's not surprised by our failures and our mistakes. Verse 36, he says, And as for those of you who are left, I'll then send faintness to their hearts and their lands and their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. As though fleeing from a sword, they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if it were before a sword when no one pursues and you shall have no power. Again, God just zaps from them the ability to have stability and strength. You have no power to stand before your enemies. He would make them vulnerable and very susceptible, a weakened people. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up and those who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. Now look with me just briefly here in these next few verses. We're going to wrap up here tonight. But take notice what God says here, verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, that they also may have walked contrary to me and that I've walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember and I will remember the land 
and the land shall be left empty by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Verse 44, look what God says. Yet for all that, all that disobedience that we just read about, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away. Nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. For I am the Lord. Pick up here next week. But I want you to notice God lays all this out and he says, look, even after, even after all your sins, and all your failure, and all the pain it brought upon your life, and, and all the, the, the remorse and the regret and the consequences, which, yes, are unescapable. God says, but even, verse 44, yet for all that, for all that, I won't cast you away and be done with you. God says, all I'm looking for is repentance. I'm looking for repentance that I might bring restoration. That's what verses 40 through 41 are about. God says, if they confess their iniquity, verse 41, if their hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt. See, God's just looking for repentance. Even the consequences and the pain and the difficulty they bring, God says, I'm just looking for that to bring genuine repentance. That people would confess their sin to just acknowledge it for what it is, he says, and that their hearts would be humbled and they would accept their guilt. That's all God's looking for. God wants to forgive. God wants to heal. God wants to restore. And look, there is no amount of failure, no gravity of mistakes, no, matter, no amount of consequences because of those mistakes that can put a person beyond the forgiveness, the restoration, the experience again of God's grace and God's blessing if they just confess their sin and humble their heart before their God and accept their guilt and say, Lord, I'm broken. I'm broken. I love what David says. He says, God, sacrifice an offering you don't desire or else I would offer it. But he says, a broken and a contrite spirit, these, O oh God, you will not despise.